Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Russell Targ to the show today. He's a physicist and an author who was a pioneer in the development of the laser and co-founder of the Stanford Research Institute's Investigation into Psychic Abilities in the 70s and 80s. He is the author of Do You See What I See? The End of Suffering, Miracles of Mine, and recently The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. He's an editor, a publisher, a songwriter, a producer, a teacher. He also retired from Lockheed Martin as the senior staff scientist where he developed laser technology for peaceful applications. We had him on last year talking about remote viewing in his book, Do You See What I See? It was one of the most interesting interviews. The subject is so exciting. And to have an expanded opportunity to talk about the reality of ESP and a physicist's proof of psychic abilities is very important for opening up the public mind and heart and to make our lives so much better. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, Russell Targ, back to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm excited. I think the first thing I want to ask you about this book is it seemed as if you really wanted to make sure in this book that there was adequate proof to demonstrate that non-local awareness and ESP is a fact of life. It's not this fringe area of study and phenomenon. That's right. I've written a number of books with titles like Looking for ESP or Studying ESP. So I decided at this point in my life, it's time for no more Mr. Nice Guy. We've proven that psychic abilities are existing just as we've proven that lasers exist. So the idea of proof is evidence so strong that it would be unreasonable to deny it. And in... uh in my book, in the reality of ESP, I'm offering that evidence that we consider so strong it'd be unreasonable to deny it. I think a lot of people, too, are going to expect just a mathematical model, and I appreciate that you've clarified what you mean by proof, that it's not just a mathematical model. Do you agree? Oh, that's definitely true. In this book, I'm really offering two kinds of proof. Some people like uh, data from a long series of experiments showing that something is statistically reliable at odds of one in a million. And other people want stories in the laboratory about how we sat there and found the missing princess that nobody could find. And we have both kinds of stories that we tell. Now, you've taught hundreds of people at Stanford Research Institute to do remote viewing, which we're going to talk about and you've cited all of these examples of ESP being a fact of life. What I appreciate of the many things that you've said and taught is that where you come from about it is that this is normal functioning for us. Everybody has this capability inherent in who we are. That's why it's so much fun to teach remote viewing, is that people find it empowering and surprising, life-affirming, that it turns out to be an ordinary ability. People learn to sit quietly, close their eyes, and they can then learn to describe and experience what's going on at a distant location or even in the future. And they find that's not hard to do. That I can do that in a weekend workshop 
give people the tools and the practice so they can then incorporate that into their lives. To It's a visualization where if you've lost your car keys, you can just stop and close your eyes and visualize what it looks like where you're going to find them. I know eventually I'll find those car keys. What does that location look like? And people can learn to do that swiftly. You say that it's just as easy to locate or gather data from an object or something a thousand or ten thousand miles away as it is across the street. That's right. The reason we call psychic abilities a non-local ability is that the accuracy and reliability is independent of space and time. So that in our work at Stanford Research Institute, we found that we could describe what's going on in China or the Soviet Union just as accurately as we could describe what's going on across the street. So increasing the distance to 10,000 miles doesn't degrade people's ability to describe what's happening. Similarly, describing what's going to happen a few days in the future is just as accurate and reliable as describing what's happening contemporaneously. So we were able to uh, forecast changes in the silver commodity market a week in advance. And we did that nine times in a row and made a lot of money. But we could forecast a week in advance just as accurately as we could describe where the hostage is hidden right now. And we did, that's how we support. We had a program supported by the government and that program went on for 23 years. So year after year, we were in service of the government during the Cold War, finding hostages, locating downed airplanes, describing what's going on in Russian weapons shop, reporting on American hostages in Iran. So we were really providing operational information to the government. In addition to doing scientific experiment that we would publish in all the best scientific journals. So it was really a two-pronged program. We paid the rent by doing operational things for the government, but we maintained our credibility at Stanford Research Institute by publishing papers in uh, Nature Magazine or the Proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers. Haven't you found that during this whole time in your life as a remote viewer and teacher that when you write articles for peer review, that the people peer reviewing have a particular bias already? They're kind of guarding the gates of the mainstream knowledge. Did you ever run up against that where, you know, you couldn't get something peer reviewed or people were very opposed to what you were coming up with? Or well, we ran it? into it, but we overcame it. That is, we published our article in Nature and we had a very strong article the first time remote viewing appeared, and we published that in Nature magazine without too much trouble. We then tried to publish a much longer review article in the proceedings of the IEEE, the Institute of Electrical Engineers. And one of our reviewers, who was the research and development vice president for Hewlett-Packard, he wrote across the top of our paper, this is the kind of thing I would not believe even if it was true. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was at the headquarters of the Engineering Society and saw that he had really done that. And the editor said, well, this makes it hard for us. Could you show us how it works? 
And the editor of the magazine was a researcher at Bell Telephone Laboratories. And my colleague, Hal Putoff, and I went to Bell Labs and showed um, Dr. Lucky. His name is Robert Lucky. It was our lucky day. And we showed him and his engineers how to do remote viewing. And Dr. Lucky then did a series of remote viewing experimental trials with his engineers, and he did five of them. He did one each day for five days where he would hide, and his appointed psychic had to describe where he was hiding. At the end of five days, Bob Lucky was able to perfectly match up the engineer's description of his hiding place with his actual hiding place. He got five out of five correct and concluded that even if an engineer can do this, this is probably not too hard. And he then published our paper. That's great. We just did an interview with John Gertner on the book, The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation. That's so neat that you were, <laughs> that your work was becoming known to them. See, all these people knew me because in my previous incarnation, I had done 15 years of laser research. I was a, a laser pioneer from the 50s up to 1972, and I was I was pretty well known for my laser work. So I could meet with Bob Lucky and then have credibility uh, with the engineers at Bell Labs because they knew me. We we had worked with Bell Labs. I wasn't at Bell Labs, but uh, we had worked with them over the years. So I was well known or known enough to get a good hearing. And they would then, the fact that I could walk into Bell Labs and they would then replicate our remote viewing perfectly uh, got everybody's attention in the scientific community. So although uh, we did have to take an extra step, uh, we were able to publish our scientific findings in the premier scientific journals. And then a few years later, we had a symposium by the uh, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and published in their proceedings. And then we had a conference on how the future affects the past, called retrocausality, and that was sponsored by the American Institute of Physics. So because Hal Putoff and I were physicists, we perhaps got better recognition and credibility than if we had been psychologists doing parapsychology. Clearly, clearly that was a huge help. And you were in the inside, actually. Safe to say you had real standing in terms of what your observations and findings were. I, I think that's true because we were also well-funded. We had a lot of money from the government and the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency. We were an unusually well-funded, unusually successful program for 23 years. So if people say, well, how do you know that ESP is real? I could tell them about uh, the statistical significance of our work or the fact that we made a lot of money in the silver market. But in a way, the most improbable thing about our work is that year after year, for 23 years, we got millions of dollars from the government to keep doing the same sort of thing finding hostages, locating downed airplanes, on and on, for all those years. And that's the most paranormal thing about our program, because it's very hard to get follow-on money. 
in my next program, my next incarnation, I went back to my roots doing laser work, and we were putting lasers on airplanes to detect air turbulence so planes wouldn't crash. So if I had a one-year successful program, it was very, very hard to get one-year follow-on from NASA to actually test the thing on an airplane. So we had more success in getting follow-on money from the Army and the Air Force doing ESP work. That was easier than laser follow-on money. How interesting. I understand through reading this book and the other one that we talked about last year that NSA wanted you and retained you but was scared of you (laughs) at the same time. That's right. Our first contact with NSA is that uh, Pat Price described what was at some coordinates that we were given by the CIA. Price said, I see a building. It looks like a uh, an army base is a circular driveway, and inside the big roll-up doors, and inside there's some filing cabinets, and he then read off the names on the filing cabinet and named the place. He said the place uh, was the haystack, and all that was correct. And the NSA was shocked when they heard about this because this was a secret uh cryptography listening place. I'm even nervous 40 years later telling this story because crypto clearance is the highest security in the U.S. government. And Price was in there sitting in our laboratory in California reading off the notes on the filing cabinets in Maryland. And we then had an investigation by the CIA and the NSA who were not amused that a California psychic was looking into their facility and describing it. We then had an invitation to come to the NSA and brief the codebreakers on what we were doing. And I had the intuition that we could read their code. So I proposed an experiment where they would write a message in their very best cipher, wrap it up in top-secret packaging and send it to SRI and they keep it in the safe in the security part of the place and we would try and read the contents of the message. We wouldn't open it. We wouldn't have to see the paper. Just lay your secret pass package on the table and we would tell the message. That proposal so freaked them out that they never wanted to see us again. They didn't want to find out the psychics in California could, in fact, read their code, even though it was all wrapped up and we didn't even have to look at it. You do make a distinction between being psychic and the practice of remote viewing, do you? Uh, no. We, we think that everybody has psychic ability. Right. Remote viewing is a protocol. In remote viewing, we ask people to describe their mental pictures. So when I... If I were doing an experiment with you right now on the phone, I would say I'm holding an interesting object. In fact, I just did this on Coast to Coast, and I had a surprising many hundreds of people send me emails with the right answer, which really shocked me at the success of this. I don't... I, I wouldn't normally do an experiment over the radio. Well, you did it with me last year. It shocked the heck out of me. <laughs> 
So in, in remote viewing, I ask people, describe your mental impressions with regard to what appears in your awareness. I have an object. Look into your awareness and describe what's surprising. Uh, that's a protocol that actually corresponds to how ESP works. If you're doing an experiment where I tell you, uh, I've got an object in a box, tell me what's in the box, that sounds like the same thing, but that experiment doesn't work. Because what we learned is that naming and grasping is the enemy of ESP. And, and that was all understood thousands of years ago. That is, there, there are Buddhist texts that says your, your awareness fills the universe, just don't try and name it or grasp it. That was totally understood uh, 2,000 years ago. But uh, at Duke University, J.B. Ryan, who's a pioneer of ESP research, had people guessing cards, circle, square, star, wavy lines, and cross. And the inevitable finding of his research is that no matter how good you were at the beginning, you always got worse. So the decline effect is one of the stumbling blocks for ESP research because as people memorized and became increasingly familiar with the ESP symbols that he used, that kind of mental noise and memory overcame the weaker psychic symbols. So having to name something you already know is not psychic ability. Naming is not ESP. Naming is an analytic ability. So it's much easier for you to describe an object that you've never seen where I just tell you, look in your awareness and describe the surprising images. Well, you can do that. You, that, you do that all the time. Just close your eyes and describe what's surprising that pops up into your awareness. That's much easier than trying to name, uh, if I tell you I've got two objects here, I've got an apple and a banana, and I put one of them on my desk, what do you see? That simple-sounding task is impossible because once I've told you that the target's either an apple or a banana, there's no way for you to psychically differentiate them. But if I tell you I've got something really peculiar, describe the shape and form, that's easy. The difference between remote viewing and card guessing uh the difference is absolutely critical, even though it sounds like a small change. So our success uh, came from the fact that we were doing a task which actually corresponds to psychic functioning rather than something that's psychologically easier to score. Clear. Non-local awareness, to me, is the greatest discovery of the modern day. Even if it was known by the ancients, forever. Okay, let's say this is just timeless knowledge. But the fact that your work and the people that you've worked with for the last 40 years have finally gathered the evidence that non-local awareness is available all the time that we live in that and that everything is knowable. I mean, that's really mind-blowing. Yeah, I don't know whether you know it. Henry Stapp, who is chairman of the physics department at UC Berkeley, California, said exactly the words that you just said. He said that the discovery of non-locality 
may be the most important discovery in all of science. It's so mind-boggling because everything we think we know for sure about time and space is now so expanded that you almost have to start over. It's a new life. It's a new game. It's a new everything. Non-locality came out of modern physics. The idea of non-locality was first proposed by Schrodinger in the 1920s and then was proved by John Stuart Bell in 1960, mathematically, and then was demonstrated at UC Berkeley in 1970, and many times after that. It's the idea that in an experiment, if you create a pair of photons, light particles, and these twin particles are created simultaneously and go off in opposite directions, if you grab the photon on the left and measure its polarization, that affects the photon on the right. And the idea of one photon affecting the orientation of its twin is really contrary to special relativity. And Einstein called that a spooky connection at a distance and said it's impossible. And that's such proof that quantum mechanics isn't correct. And in 1970, uh, physicists proved that quantum mechanics is correct and the entangled photons do affect one another. It's like the experiments with identical twins. There are many, many articles and books written showing uh, that twins born together and separated uh, at birth still have surprising connections in what they do for a living and what they wear and how they behave. So this twin telepathy is like the correlation between the twin particles, the independent of how far apart they are. What's the distinction between quantum interconnectedness and entanglement? I'm a little confused. I would say that for our purposes, those are, those are the same things. That is, uh, David Bohm talked about quantum interconnectedness, and he felt that uh, all things share quantum interconnectedness. And uh, Bohm, of course, understood quantum theory perfectly, uh, but he, he felt that most of life and consciousness is interconnected. He talked about um, the way that things can be separated and still connected to one another. And I, I'm trying to think of the term, sort of an implicit... Uh, connection. And this was known, he called it the implicate order, where things are are connected even though they seem separate. But this was known thousands of years ago. That is, what I'm describing here is not New Age. In the Hindu Vedas, 2,000 years before Christ, there was a famous teaching that Atman equal Brahman where Atman is yourself or your soul or your awareness. And they taught that 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 your awareness is one with all of physical and non-physical space-time. The the time of the Vedas, 2,000 years before Christ, it was accepted in Hindu philosophy that your awareness fills the whole universe with your consciousness. And that was understood. And in Buddhist teaching, 2,000 years later, the idea that separation is an illusion 
appears on every page of the Prajnaparamita, which is the Buddhist teaching. And then 800 years after that, 1,200 years ago, the great Buddhist teacher Padmasambhava talked about the importance for your mental health to get away from conditioned awareness, where your condition, where your awareness is governed by your ego, and you want to move from that conditioned awareness to spaciousness, where you experience naked or timeless awareness. So I was very impressed that 1,200 years ago, uh, Buddha's Dharma master is talking about timeless awareness. That sounds really very contemporary. He said there is no time. Time is an illusion. Is something that Einstein said. So the idea that our awareness fills all of space and time, that for consciousness there is no distance, there is no time, that's a very old idea. And we're beginning to get a descri- get the vocabulary to describe it from modern physics. And the reason that I'm still running around doing workshops, giving people an opportunity to experience their own, own non-local selves, I'm doing that is because it makes people feel very empowered and it's very easy to teach. I just have to give people permission to do it, set the stage, and say, now you're going to describe the object I'll show you in a little while. I ask them to describe their mental impressions. Don't guess what it is. Just quiet your mind and describe the surprising images that appear in your awareness. And that's it. People are able to do that. In my new book, The Reality of ESP, I devote a couple of chapters to actually teaching people how to get in touch with their awareness. Let's talk about the signal-to-noise ratio. This is very important for setting the conditions for being able to access what you're talking about. We don't know how to increase the psychic signal. That is, if I have an object in my hand here and I ask you to describe it, in your awareness is going to be something like a signal. It's not that I'm beaming it to you. The reason you can, the reason you can see my object, in my opinion, is that for consciousness, there's no distance between us at all. So you just describe uh, the thing that I'm holding because you can experience it directly. But you've got other things in your visual field. You've got your cup of coffee, and you have the microphone, and you've got uh, the windows and, and your desk and all the different things come into your awareness. That's all noise. You're a really clear picture of your coffee cup. Now, how are you going to separate my object from your coffee cup? And that my object represents a psychic signal. You're trying to experience the weird object I've got in my hand, but you've got to separate that from the pieces of paper and the coffee cup and the microphone and the other things right in your visual field. Well, your images of the things right in your visual field are noise. Your apprehension of my psychic object is a signal. So you want to find a way to increase the strength of the psychic signal and diminish the strength of the mental noise. And uh, with really the contribution of Ingo Swan that taught us how to separate uh, these out. He called the noise analytical overlay it's from memory and imagination and analysis that interferes with psychic functioning. 
that is if you if you try and figure out what do I have, could it be a pen? Could it be a stapling machine? Could it be an exacto knife? What what could I have in my hand? That's all analysis, and that's the enemy of psychic functioning. <clears throat> what you want to do psychically is describe your experience of the surprising images. And the more skillful and experience you can get at describing these images, the more successful you'll be at ESP. So you want to make your friendship and communication with these uh, surprising images in your awareness, you want to make them stronger than your memory and analysis of a coffee cup in front of you. I would say the greatest challenge is to become very adept at describing and learning that protocol and process because that, to me, is where the action is in the whole thing. I think that's right. And it's a kind of demand situation that if I'm there and I say, okay, the the travelers are at some distant location. I don't know what they are. Just start telling me about the surprising things that show up with regard to where they are. To just tell me what appears in your awareness. And if you're doing that by yourself, you sort of don't want to do that because you don't know where they are. But if if I'm there with you and I say, just start talking. I know it doesn't make any sense. Just tell me what you see. <clears throat> As a kind of demand situation or permission giving uh, where people will then open up and really describe it. When people are in the psychic signal, Russell, and they're describing what they're seeing, isn't there also a describing of the feeling tone of what they're seeing or the ambiance of what they're seeing? Well, as an interviewer, I can describe or I've learned a sense uh, sort of the tone of what they say. For example, if the government contract monitor has gone to hide someplace and the person says, well, I, I know where they are now. They're at Macy's. Uh, I'll stop them right there and said, Let, let's take a break. Don't tell me about Macy's. That's an analytic idea. Macy's is an idea. Macy's is not a picture. Tell me about the images that come into your awareness. So the, the interviewer really has uh, work to do to make sure that the people stick with their psychic impressions, and, and not go off guessing. It's in this part that's confounding to me because, you know, I've taken a remote viewing course last June for five days, and it was mind-blowing. But it's still remarkable how at the level at which you did what you did, Pat Price did what he did, Joe McMonagle does what he did, and all the people that have been trained, the first hundred people, we're able to describe the level of precision that you're all working with. In other words, at some point, to be of intelligence use, you have to not only describe it eventually, you have to be able to give direct, specific information. How did you move from the description zone to saying this is a missile test site or this is an encryption listening area? How could it be useful to the intelligence agencies? There has to be some conversion from the description to this is what it is. How did you make that leap? Well, there's the talent threshold also. Everybody can do psychic abilities to some extent, but some people are better at it than others. So that uh, I'm a journeyman remote viewing. I can probably 
help you find your car keys, your bracelet, or whatever you've lost. I can help you find that, but I'm not going to be able to tell you that this is a missile test site. It's as though uh, no matter how much I practice the piano, it's not going to get me to Carnegie Hall. (laughs) Okay. So we had some people who were good enough at this to get statistically significant results from their psychic functioning, and a few, like Hella Hammett and Joe McMonigle and Pat Price and Ingo Swan, could actually describe the thing in enough detail so that you could figure out what what's happening at the at the site, and it's practice. You see, the difference between remote viewing and card guessing is that in the remote viewing work we do, where you're just describing your images, people get better. They they learn that skill. It's an intellectual skill where you learn to describe the things that appear in your awareness, and people improve at that. They get better at it. Whereas with card guessing, they get worse. Because as they increase their familiarity with the five possible symbols, that becomes more and more noise in their mental screen. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit to the physics, and then I want to get back to this, if you don't mind. I know that you want to make a very, and you do make a very clear distinction between ESP and string theory, as proposed by Michel Koku. And I'd like you to explain the difference, because I think... People that are really into this realm assume that somehow remote viewing and being psychic is an extension of string theory. Explain it to us, why it's not. Well, string theory is a model for the behavior of elementary particles, and that model may or may not be correct. The evidence for ESP is much better than the evidence for string theory. So the idea that string theory is vibrating one-dimensional bits of energy, that's an idea describing how elementary particles work. And it's a model for how elementary particles work, which may or may not be correct. There's no evidence for it. It's just an ad hoc model. It's, It's a way of describing it. Where I say that psychic abilities are non-local, there have now been 50 years of research showing that people can describe things a thousand miles away just as well as things in the laboratory, that increasing the distance a thousand-fold doesn't degrade the ESP. That's what you mean by non-local ability. A non-local ability is one that's independent of the spatial distance. So there's there's no question that ESP is non-local because we can describe what's going on in Russia or China as well as we can with going on across the street. And the most interesting thing that I can tell you is that we can describe what's happening a few days in the future just as well as what's going on contemporaneously. And I want to talk to you about that. that, We know that that's true. The psychologist Daryl Bem has just published a very interesting paper in a uh, mainstream psychology journal show experiments done with a thousand college students showing that they their behavior is often affected by things that they're going to see at a later time. BEM's, my favorite experiment of the nine that BEM did, and it's one that I describe in my in my book in the reality of ESP. I talk a lot about Daryl BEM, 
But my favorite experiment he did is one that I think of as studying for the exam after you've taken it. And good students will always go back to the exam questions after the exam and see is there anything I didn't know. And the experiment that Daryl Bem did is he would have his group of students individually see a, a list of 48 words and say, I'm going to show you these words and what a word every two seconds, and I want you to memorize them to the best of your ability. That's the test. Now write down all the words you can remember, and people would write down a few words, and, and then he's done. And then he will randomly choose 24 words from the group of 48 and say, I want you to categorize these carefully into animal, vegetable, and mineral. And they could do that. And what he found is that they were much better at remembering the words that they would study after the exam. So the 24 words that they had to categorize in animal, vegetable, and mineral were much more likely to be remembered than the other 24 words that they saw only one time. What do you attribute that to? That the words that they saw at a later time were apprehended earlier. That is, the future can affect the past. It's like having a precognitive dream. For example, I can tell you that if you had a dream tonight of an elephant walking down the street and trampling your lawn, you, that's, that's your dream. You had a dream about this big elephant. Sounds exciting. <laughs> and you don't, norm, you don't normally dream about elephants, let's say. Yes. And then tomorrow, uh, you're having breakfast, and you look out the window, and you say, my God, I think there's a giant elephant walking right down the street that's coming my way. I would say that Wednesday morning's elephant experience was the cause of Tuesday night's dream of an elephant. That the future is affecting the past. The elephant is in your future, and it's affecting your dream at an earlier time. Would you say it's affecting, or would you say it's communicating itself? See, to me, as you say it, I would hear that the future communicates itself to us in the present. That's okay. You can say that. The thing that we observe, the, the thing that we observe is that you do have an you do have a dream. You right. had a dream about something weird. So as a physicist or as a psychologist, I would say that that weird dream had some kind of antecedent, that is something caused you to dream about an elephant. We don't know what it was, but, but something in your subconscious processes caused that elephant. And since we look around and say, what could that be? You say, well, the next morning I saw an elephant. Do you think that could have been the cause? So I would say probably Wednesday morning the elephant was the cause of Tuesday night's dream, unless you've got a better explanation. It sounds similar to what I'm saying, but basically, you, you could yeah. could say that it communicated itself, but when you, when you say communicated itself, it's sort of implying a model that I think is probably not correct. Well, explain what you mean by that a little bit. Because I think that in a non-local space-time where we live, there's really no distance between your body lying in bed on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning's elephant. In the non-local space-time, 
there is always a path connecting you to the to every point in the space time. There's no distance between you and the future. There are, you you can know anything you want to know contemporaneous or in the future. You can't know everything, of course, because your your little brain is only finite. So you can't pack you can't pack everything of the universe into your brain, but you can know anything, any one thing at a time that you need to know. So there's no separate there's no distance between you and the future. So when you say the elephant is being communicated to me, in our ordinary discourse, our communication sort of implies that the thing in the distance in the future is sending a message to me when I'm lying in bed asleep, and I think that that's probably not correct. Oh, I get it. I get what you're saying now. That's very interesting. You make a really profound point. There is no separation. We, the, the idea that there's no separation may sound like a new-agey idea, but that was known 4,000 years ago. You know the yin-yang symbol that we all see? Yes. There was a Hindu teaching 4,000 years ago of non-locality. It says that in every black there's some white, in every white there's some black. There's no separation. Whenever you make a distinction, you make an error. It says that every, everything contains the elements of everything else. Is that what a hologram is? A hologram is a lot like that. There are holographic models of the universe where every piece, that's a good question, every piece of the hologram contains information about the whole picture. So if you have a holographic plate, which is usually a glass plate, and it's a picture of a nice sparkly wine glass, and if you just break off a little corner of that and re-illuminate that, with a laser, the whole wine glass will be, still be there. It won't be in as high resolution or as great detail as if you have the whole big plate, but every element of the wine glass is contained in every little piece of the picture. Do you think that we are holograms, or I don't know how to say, electrically holographic? No, I, I, I think the, holograph, the, the hologram is a nice model. The, the hologram is a model for non-locality. To, to have a hologram work implies that you've got a monochromatic laser-like thing to illuminate it. The, the, a hologram is a specific uh, optical object which we don't really have in our brain. Okay. A, hol the, a hologram is, is a kind of model for non-local functioning. Uh, I don't think it's the actual um, way it is. That is, uh, Penrose, no, Carl Prebram thought that the brain was holographic. And the answer really is the brain is like a hologram, but it's not actually, there's, there's really no hologram in your, there's no, the brain does not contain a three-dimensional hologram of the universe. The, the brain is distributed, so every piece of the brain contains all the information, but it doesn't contain it like a hologram. If I remember correctly, I think you've said that non-locality, it's not in the brain. 
it's beyond the brain. Oh, definitely. We live in a non-local space-time. Let let me... uh, This is kind of a complicated issue. I have a website where I describe this. So let me invite people to go to my website, which is ESPResearch.com. And I have a paper there called The Speed of Thought, describing this whole non-local model. So if they go to ESPResearch.com, then they'll be able to find out the, the physics model of what we've been describing. Is there anything you want to say briefly about the speed of thought? Yes, that you can't measure it. It's not well-defined. I was going to write a... My, my co-author on the this model, that we have this non-local model for uh, psychic functioning. My co-author is Elizabeth Rauscher, the theoretical physicist from Berkeley. And we were thinking about how do you describe the speed of thought? And it then came, came to us that it became obvious that the speed of thought is not defined. That is, she said, maybe you could do an experiment where I would uh, look at a signal in New York and see how long it took you in California to tap the right key. And what we realized, and the idea is you could then measure how many milliseconds it took me to tap the key. But what we realized is that in a certain frame of mind, I could tap the key before she looked at the picture. So that would mean it took me minus two seconds to respond to her stimulus, which would mean the speed of thought was infinite or undefined because of the velocity. Um, it, it took a negative time to, for the signal to reach me, which doesn't make any sense. So, so because... Because thought is instantaneous, you can't... Thought is instantaneous or precognitive. You can't measure the speed of thought. For example, if um, if I say I, I'm thinking of something and you had already written it down before I told you I'm thinking about it, then it doesn't make any sense to say how long did it take you to get my picture because it took you minus two seconds. Okay. Do you think that thoughts can function in a causal way to manifest reality? I think they certainly can. There's a vast literature on spiritual healing where the thoughts of a healer can affect the physical and mental health of a distant person. So the work we've been talking about all the past uh, half hour has been about inflowing signals that is transcendent knowing, how you can quiet your mind and inflow the nature of the universe, that's psychic functioning. You can also outflow your healing intentions. You can have transcendent knowing, which is what we're talking about, remote viewing, or transcendent doing, which is really distant healing. And my daughter, Elizabeth, who was a psychiatrist, did a famous experiment where she had healers all over the country send healing energy or healing intentions to a group of 60 of her AIDS patients in San Francisco. She chose 30 of them to receive healing prayers, let's say, and 30 were controlled. And the people who received the healing prayers 
had much better outcomes than the controls. The people who for whom prayers were sent uh, had fewer trips to the doctor, fewer opportunistic illnesses, better psychological health, and a highly significant experiment that she published in the Western Medical Journal. So we would say that the thoughts of these experienced healers clearly affected the physical and psychological health of the distant people. So the, the thoughts are clearly efficacious, and there, there's a, uh, a lot of evidence for that. I have a chapter in Reality of ESP in my new book. I have a chapter on spiritual healing describing on how the thoughts of one person can affect the health and behavior of another person. Now, the Russians during the Cold War, while we were doing remote viewing, the Russians were interested in psychic interactions with distant people. And their famous experiment, while we were sitting in California describing a Russian weapons factory where they were trying to make a particle beam weapon, the Russians were trying to affect the behavior of American leaders as they appeared on television. The famous Russian experiment is one of distant strangulation where an experienced Russian telepath sat in Moscow and imagined that he was strangling his friend in Leningrad, and it was a highly successful experiment. As our friend Larissa Velenskaya uh, wrote that up and gave us firsthand information about this distant strangulation experiment. So it's how the thoughts of one person can affect the physiology of a distant person. That's scary. <laughs> so be careful what you think. That's really chilling. And I'm sure that it happens all the time. <laughs> well, the the reason, the thing that makes that seem quite sensible is if I tell you uh, I'm thinking of a an object, this object uh, doesn't actually exist anywhere, I'm just making up an object, and I'm visualizing it. And I ask you, can you visualize the thing that I'm thinking of? And you say, well, I see something that looks kind of like a cone. And I'll tell you, well, that's terrific, because what I was visualizing was an ice cream cone. So it was really well done. But what the way you would describe that is my thoughts caused you to have an experience of an ice cream cone 300 miles, whatever it is, 400 miles away. So my thoughts triggered a whole, a whole imagistic process in your brain just because I was thinking about it. And what we what that suggests is that there's really no distance. It's really a, a, a one mind, one consciousness. We all participate in the same soup of consciousness, the same non-local awareness to some extent. Now, our awareness is really tied to our physical bodies. So I experience my chair and my glass of water uniquely but we can share our consciousness to a certain extent, and that's why we call it non-local awareness. You said in the book, when you talked about astral sex and you gave examples of lovers that have been once connected that could be separated by thousands of miles can still be together in this other realm. Can you explain a little bit about that? 
Well, that's why every partner worries about ex-girlfriends that you've become entangled with in the past. It's the idea that people who are emotionally entangled for a long time together, their awareness remains entangled. So even though they're separated, that they can still have the opportunity to experience one another. And that that connection uh, remains in the big literature my Alistair Crowley wrote about sex on the astral plane, and McKinley Cantor wrote a book called Don't Touch Me regarding his psychic sexual connection with his wife when he was in Korea and she was in Los Angeles. And Ingo Swan has an engaging book called Psychic Sexuality. Swan, as I mentioned before, is the artist and psychic who taught us all how to do remote viewing. And he felt that the psychic sexuality is a big part of the connection uh, between human beings. Do you think that that's where it begins, that almost all sexuality begins in a psychic realm first? Well, I would say that's different for different people. Uh, Some people are very struck with the appearance of another person. They just see a flash of the person on a screen and they, they, they connect with that person they, they love. Oftentimes when that happens, the appearance of the person will trigger or re-stimulate some earlier picture that they've seen or some person that they've cared for. But there's certainly a, uh, there's often a uh, uncanny resonance between people which seems certainly to have a psychic part to them. I know that Joe McMonagle, who was considered one of the great remote viewers, I wonder why it is he feels so strongly that it can't be taught or that he can't teach it, and yet you can teach it and other people have been able to transfer the knowledge. Well, what Joe thinks correctly is that you can't make another Joe McMonagle by going to an ESP class, that you can't replicate him by go, by taking classes in ESP. Right. There's a certain sense you can't make another Yasha Heifetz by going to violin school unless you happen to be Yasha Heifetz. Or... He's like at a mastery level of what he does. That's right. Now, but there's no, see, there's no doubt at all that if I set up a little experiment with you and say, here we are now, uh, hold the microphone in one hand, hold the pencil in the other hand, and start drawing the interesting thing that I have, you can do that. There's no, no doubt about it that I've done that hundreds right, of times. Right, right. You did that on last year's show. So, so there's no doubt that I can show somebody how to do remote viewing. It's, it's indubitable. Now, there will probably be some ceiling on what you can do. You may become a great psychic. I don't know. Uh, you, you, but uh, practice will take you up to the the ceiling that you have. It's like no matter how much I practice, I'm not going to become a great piano player. I just don't have that in me. I don't have that ability. I don't have, I don't have that musical gene. And as much as I would like to play better than I do, it's not going to happen. doesn't mean that I can't learn to play a little bit. Yes. I don't know why he says you can't teach it. We had six people come to us from the Army 
and I showed all six of them how to do remote viewing. Uh, Joe is by far the best. Uh, another uh, one was almost as good as Joe. Two were pretty good, and two couldn't do it. There's a whole range of ability, but we took six people out of a group of Army intelligence people, and there's no doubt in ordinary parlance, I, I taught six people how to do remote viewing. Some were excellent and some were not. I just wanted to bring that up because it was kind of like a paradox. You know, he's one of the best in the world and he doesn't think it could be taught. And yet, obviously, it can be taught and it has been taught for years. Yeah. So it was kind of like, wow. You write about presentiment. For some reason, I'm reading presentiment and understanding it like it's precognition. Is it the same? It is the same, but it usually shows up. In precognition, you have cognition. You say, I had a dream of an elephant. What do you think that means? And the elephant shows up. In presentment, you really have a, a physiological experience. An example of presentment would be you're walking down the street, and suddenly you have a catch in your throat, and you you feel that you feel danger, and you stop walking, and the flower pot falls off the ledge, and it falls at your feet instead of on your head. So be that would be a useful presentment, but it comes to you as a physiological experience rather than as a cognition. So Dean Radin at No Institute for Noetic Sciences has been doing most of the presentment experiments where he will measure people's heart rate or skin resistance as they look at a computer screen. And sometimes on the screen they will see a frightening picture of a car accident or abdominal surgery, and sometimes they'll see a puppy or a Dixie cup, and they show a change in their heart rate depending on what they're going to see. If you see a frightening or disturbing element, you'll have a kind of orienting response, steeling yourself against this terrible thing you're going to see before you see it. And the reason it's not precognition is that there's no cognition. You're not aware of what's going to happen, but your body, your physiology knows what's going to happen and uh, shows up on the recorder. So presentment, you could say, is non-conscious precognition. Fascinating. That makes sense? Yes, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Who came up with the word presentiment? Is it presentiment? Presentiment is a kind of 19th century idea that just before a woman would faint, she would have a presentiment that something bad is going to happen. So I would say that this is something in 19th century literature. Sort of something come out of Jane Austen's people would have presentments of something bad happening. So I think that it's not a contemporary term. I would guess that it's a Jane Austen period term. So somebody can look that up and tell us. What's happening in the next six months for you? I know you just did a piece with Deepak Chopra, didn't you? That's coming up on the 27th. I'm teaching at his place in La Jolla, Southern California doing a uh, one-day workshop with him. Uh, I'm doing less workshop. Workshops are very demanding for me because I'm responsible for 
people having experience. So it's much easier for me to chat with you on the phone about psychic abilities than to stand in front of a big group with the responsibility that they have a psychic experience. Because I have to sort of be up there and sparkle and put out the energy and the attention to motivate people to do something psychic. So I'm going to be doing less of that, and I'm interested in working on models for how ESP actually works. Do you think that the NSA or CIA or any other Army intelligence agencies would be interested in funding anything else that you're doing in the here and now? Uh, I don't think so. There's still Our program was ended in 1995 because Robert Gates, who's head of the CIA at the time, said that America no longer has any serious enemies requiring a psychic core. So he ended the program in 95, and it really requires courageous, far-seeing people in the government to support it. So if people are worried about being teased for supporting ESP, it's not going to go very far. I think that the next step is not a new experiment, but a new theory that can be tested if we can find a way to scientifically test or scientifically create a theory of non-local psychic functioning, uh, I think that would be a big contribution. Huge. Is that something that you would need funding for or not really? I think it would need funding to create a core group of people to support my colleague Elizabeth Rauscher or maybe James Spottiswood or some other institutionally supported physicists. I think you need a critical mass of imaginative physicists to work on the problem. And they're only going to do that if they're financially supported. So I think that would be a very worthwhile research program for the NSF to support to try and do some model building for how ESP works. We can now, my opinion is we don't need another experiment. We know that psychic functioning really exists, and we have to find out how it works to take the next step forward. So when I wrote The Reality of ESP, uh, I sort of steadfastly called it a physicist's proof of psychic abilities because the evidence is so strong you really can't doubt its reality. Well, is a model to describe how it works. It's very exciting. How much funding do you think would allow your core group to come together? Oh, half a million dollars a year. That's it? Yeah. Wow. So I invite people to come and visit me at ESPResearch.com. They can write to me, and if people write to me, I'll answer questions. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Russell Targ the author of the new book, The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. And I want to thank you for coming back on the show again. It's such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and will continue to do. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm happy to chat with you.